I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, somber anniversary. One month since Hamas attacked Israel. We bring you the latest on the war in the Holy Land and what the White House is saying today. Meanwhile... I'm here because it's been 30 days. Every day is like eternity to me, and I can't wait any longer. Emotional testimony. Family members of the hostages held by Hamas speak out on Capitol Hill. Abortion on the ballot. As voters head to the polls on an off-year election, we look at where life is at stake. EWTN Pro-Life Weekly's Prudence Robertson gives analysis. And clarity on the conclave. What you need to know about reports on papal election reform in Rome. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us. We begin with a grim milestone. The Israel-Hamas war enters its second month with no end in sight to the suffering on both sides. The Israeli prime minister did not mince words in his latest statement. Citizens of Israel, a month ago, a war was forced on us by an extremely cruel enemy, an enemy who wanted to massacre us. This enemy is going to be hit. It's going to be eliminated. We are going to eliminate his capabilities. Gaza is not going to be a threat on Israel anymore. Well, the prime minister added the military is making great progress in the war, saying the army has killed thousands of Hamas fighters. The Israeli military said forces are now battling in the depths of Gaza City. This signals a new stage in the war that has already claimed thousands of lives. Also, a month in, the whereabouts of 240 hostages taken by Hamas are still unknown. People gathered and lit candles in a Tel Aviv square to remember those who were killed and abducted during the October 7th attack. In Gaza, unrelenting Israeli airstrikes are turning block after block into piles of rubble. Here, rescue workers race to find survivors in the wreckage of a flattened building in Deir Abalab. The White House, U.S. State Department and Pentagon are all separately holding news briefings today, updating reporters on the Mideast war. Among the main topics, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying that when Israel's war with Hamas is over, Israel will take overall security responsibility in Gaza indefinitely. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Tracy, in addition to what the Israeli prime minister told ABC News, also addressed today at those multiple briefings you mentioned the fate of hundreds of hostages being held by Hamas and U.S. military personnel coming under attack. With Israel planning to maintain control over Gaza for an indefinite period after its war with Hamas, in the White House press briefing room today, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. We don't support a reoccupation of Gaza by the Israeli Defense Forces. We do think that there needs to be uh, a healthy set of conversations about what post-conflict Gaza looks like and what governance looks like. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu expressed openness to little pauses in the fighting, but ruled out any general ceasefire without the release of all the more than 240 hostages. And at the U.S. State Department... The release of hostages has, of course, been a 
key and evergreen goal of ours since October 7th. The Secretary has been incredibly clear about that, not just with his Israeli counterparts, but also any country in the region who may have a relationship with Hamas or who may have influence over Hamas. Meanwhile, the Pentagon today addressing American forces in Iraq and Syria coming under attack again and again, 40 times since mid-October. We decide to respond at a time and place of our choosing. Um, we don't necessarily have to be tit for tat every single time. Um, we are incredibly st strategic about when we decide to take kinetic action. And overseas, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who is just in the Middle East trying to build support for humanitarian pauses. Now in Japan meeting with other foreign ministers from the G7 to discuss big issues, including the wars in the Middle East and Ukraine. Meanwhile, Israel and Hezbollah are trading fire along Israel's northern border. Also, Hamas continues firing rockets into Israel from Gaza, and humanitarian workers say the aid coming into Gaza is far too little. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. Our relatives of those currently being held hostage by the Iranian-backed terrorist group Hamas join lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Each one told stories of how they learned their loved ones were kidnapped or killed and asked Congress for more help to bring them home safely. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales has that story. Good evening. Israeli defense officials still believe some 240 people are being held hostage by Hamas inside Gaza. The relatives of some of those hostages told emotional stories to lawmakers about the last conversations they had with their loved ones. He actually said, uh, I want to say my last words, we're not going to survive it. Nobody survived it. Everybody is killed. Doris Lieber says her 26-year-old son Guy was shot in the arm. He was working as a sound tech at the music festival when the attack took place. Days later, Doris learned her son was taken hostage by Hamas. It's been 30 days. Every day is like eternity to me. And I can't wait any longer because I know that he was shot. I know... I don't know anything. Others say now is the time to act. This is a call for action. And this is a wake-up call, not only for Israel, not only for the Jewish community. This is a wake-up call for all of, you, all of you here, all of America, all of Europe. Florida Congressman Corey Mills, an Army Special Forces veteran, and a team were on the ground near Gaza days after the attack. He helped get Americans out. I was able to successfully get 32 Americans out on the first day, personally, and 45 out the second day, going through areas of the West Bank, through Jerusalem, Tiberias, Haifa, Nazareth, and other areas doing consolidations and making continual efforts to try and pull Americans out who have been trapped, stranded, or left behind by the Biden administration. Democrats agree days, getting hostages home is dire. And the international community needs to put their focus squarely on these hostages, and they need to put the pressure on Hamas to return them home. I don't want to hear anything about a ceasefire until these hostages come home. Republicans claim just like in Afghanistan, the Biden administration has been slow to bringing Americans home safely. Democrats say the administration is not just focused on bringing hostages home, but also providing aid to Israel and providing humanitarian resources to the Palestinian people. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly.
Well, today is election day, and even though it's an off year, races across the country could have far-reaching implications for 2024 and beyond, including on the topic of abortion. Voters in Virginia will determine the balance of power in the state legislature, where Governor Glenn Youngkin could enact pro-life protections at 15 weeks if state Republicans gain enough seats. Youngkin told reporters today that his opponents are mischaracterizing what's at stake. I will support one bill, one bill that will protect life at 15 weeks, a bill that ha will, will have exceptions for rape and incest and when the life of the mother is at risk. That's the bill we'll do. And anything anybody else says is an absolute lie. And in Ohio, voters will choose whether to enshrine abortion into the state constitution, a measure that pro-lifers in the state, including Governor Mike DeWine, have opposed. And joining us now is Prudence Robertson, host of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. Prudence, great to have you on today. Um, Ohio, as you know, has been a red state in recent years. Curious, how did we get to this point? that the Ohio ballot includes some really extreme abortion uh, proposition. Well, thanks for having me, Tracy. And you're right. Ohio has been a deeply pro-life state for decades with a law on the books that limits abortion as early as you can hear a child's heartbeat. But unfortunately, the Yes campaign on issue one has been able to outspend pro-life Ohioans by about three to one. They've been able to bring a lot of money and messengers in from out of state and confuse the voters of Ohio. They've gone so far as to conflict Christian and Catholic values with voting in favor of abortion. One campaign ad in, in Ohio even had a man praying in a Catholic church and then deciding to vote yes on issue one, to vote yes to allow pro-abortion language to be added to the Constitution. So not only are pro-abortion voters in the state galvanized after the overturn of Roe versus Wade to protect so-called abortion rights, pro-lifers in Ohio are confused about how they should catch, cast their vote this evening. So it'll be interesting to see how things play out as the vote tallies come in tonight. Yeah, for sure. And also, you know, can you clarify for us, Prudence? I mean, what do we know for certain uh, that this ballot measure would do if it's passed and, you know, enacted? Yes. Well, if issue one is voted on, if a majority of Ohioans vote yes, language would be added to the Constitution that allows for anyone to make decisions about their own, quote, reproductive health care. And that is including but not limited to abortion. It would do away with important safety standards that currently keep the abortion industry in Ohio in check. For example, currently women have to be consulted by a doctor before they choose abortion. Laws like that would be null and void. Uh, issue one, would also allow for abortion through all nine months up until the moment of birth. So that means in Ohio, a deeply pro-life state, women could seek abortion as at any time. You know, when we know that babies have a heartbeat, when they feel pain in the womb when undergoing an abortion. And finally, this would be a severe blow, Tracy, to, to parental rights. Um, because of that phrase, including but not limited to abortion, uh, what, this, what this amendment really means is that young boys and girls um, could even seek out an invasive sex change surgery without the knowledge of their parents um, if they wanted to, and there would be no barring that. Mm. I want to talk about Virginia now. Sure. Uh, uh, abortion is not specifically on the ballot there, but there really could be some major consequences for the pro-life cause in this bellwether state. Talk to us about that, Prudence. Yes. So currently, Governor Glenn Youngkin and Republicans control the House in Virginia and, of course, the executive branch, the governor's mansion. But Democrats hold a slight majority in the state Senate. And so pro-lifers in Virginia are hoping that the Senate might be flipped tonight so that Governor Youngkin and, and pro-life lawmakers can pass a 15-week 
limit on abortion. And this would be uh, this would be a win because Virginia is really the only state um, in the South that has not passed a law yet that limits abortion early on in pregnancy. So it would be quite significant if uh, if pro-lifers, if Republicans can pick up those three seats needed in the Senate to gain a majority. And remember, uh, this is where former Governor Ralph Northam some years ago endorsed abortion on demand up until the moment of birth and even infanticide. So Governor Glenn Youngkin and Republicans have not been shy about their commitment to end that extremism should they take back the Senate tonight. All right. We're going to leave it right there, Prudence. Great to have you on. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Thank you so much. Oh, well, the Iowa caucus only about two months away. Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis just scored a big endorsement. Someone who calls out our moral decline for what it is, who looks to the future and not the past. Someone who most importantly can win. And that person is Ron DeSantis. so proud to stand here tonight and give him my full support and endorsement for President of the United States of America. Well, the support of Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds may just be the bump that DeSantis needs. Right now, the Florida governor trails behind former President Donald Trump in the Republican primary polls. The vote in Iowa is set for January 15th. 2024. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including the right to bear arms. A law prohibiting domestic abusers from firearms is in question. And we look at the state of the economy today and what it means for families. and domestic violence are at the heart of a Second Amendment case argued before the Supreme Court today. Justices are considering a section of federal law that bars a person subject to a domestic violence restraining orders from owning a firearm. The case involves a Texas man who was found with guns in his apartment while his girlfriend had taken out a protective order against him. He was also a suspect in additional shootings. The court's ultimate decision on this case could impact almost every type of gun control law, including the one used to charge the president's son, Hunter Biden. A decision is expected by early summer. I know ABC News Ipsos poll finds the economy and health care top the list of the most important issues to Americans. According to the poll results, Republicans are more trusted with the economy, inflation and crime, while Democrats have the advantage with gun violence, education and health care. With a sharp slowdown in hiring last month, many economists believe a market cooling is ahead. This as the Federal Reserve extended its pause on rate hikes but left the door open for future increases as it tries to combat inflation. And joining us now is Joel Griffith, research fellow and the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Joel, great to have you back on. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, a lot to get to here. Uh, but first, how much of a factor do you think the economy is playing in this off-year election? Oh, it's a huge factor, and that's because American families have not experienced this type of financial pain in more than 40 years. Um, we've all, of course, have lived the inflation experience. But even though the inflation rate has come down somewhat, we are still living with the accumulated costs of all the enormous price hikes of the past three years. Typical middle-class family is earning around $5,000 less per year 
in real terms than they were three years ago. And that's not even factoring in the higher interest rate costs and credit cards. And it's not even factoring in the fact that a mortgage on a home was about a thousand dollars more per month now than it was a year and a half ago. Yeah, Joel, I mean, a lot of people are feeling the pinch right now. Uh, they're also dipping into the retirement funds and, as you mentioned, relying on credit cards to make ends meet, that is. In fact, the uh, New York Fed, uh, as you know, just released a report on household debt today and found Americans now owe over $1 trillion on their credit cards. What's more, the balances rose by a whopping $154 billion year over year. Um, Joel, why is credit card debt rising so much and how are people going to get it under control? Well, credit card debt is rising so much because of that decline in real income. If you look at that $5,000 hit to real income and then co compare that to the about $3,000 per family in additional credit card debt, plus the fact that families have dipped into their savings, the savings rate right now is near all-time lows, people have dipped into their savings added on credit card debt, and that's just to compensate themselves for that $5,000 a year decline in real wages. It's not that people are wasting money on, on frivolous living. No, people are using those credit card balances to make their auto payments, to make their rent payments, and to buy groceries for the family. Yeah, it's really concerning. You know, another big concern is the war between Israel and Hamas and the potential for that to spill over into other parts of the region. Uh, many speculate that could impact oil prices, sort of reminiscent of the Arab-Israeli War of 1973, which, as you know, led to an oil embargo and soaring prices. I want to get your thoughts on that, Joel. Do you think that could happen again here? Well, of course, oil prices are very volatile. Oil prices actually have dropped by about 20% the last six weeks or so. But anytime you have uh, a conflict in a part of the world that either produces a lot of our energy or in which a lot of energy is shipped, which, of course, a lot of tankers go through the Suez Canal near Israel, that can have short-term price impacts on oil. If you look at the Iraq war of, of 20 years ago, look at the, the Putin war against Ukraine, and now this, there are there, there are instances in which oil prices can surge. However, we are in a far better place as a nation than we were 40-something years ago when OPEC announced an embargo. We are producing um, almost all of the energy needs that, that we uh, have need for here. And so I think the risk of that is far lower than it would have been had we not invested so much in our productive capacity for natural gas and oil. We're in a far better situation now than we were then. Joel, we're going to leave it right there. Thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate your insights as always. Thank you. Have a great night. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, synodal reforms. How a cardinal is responding to reports that say he is behind papal election revisions. Plus, welcome to the faith. We look at two celebrities who recently converted to Catholicism. Welcome back. The Archdiocese of Baltimore is ending services at St. Benedict Church. This following the suspension of longtime pastor Father Pascal Morlino after he admitted to making a payment several years ago to settle sexual harassment allegations. The church will continue to host community events, but parishioners will be rerouted to other parishes for mass. A cardinal ad canon lawyer denies that he is involved in changing the papal election process to make it more synodal following reports over the weekend. Catholic outlets, The Pillar and The Remnant reported that Pope Francis had tasked Cardinal John Franco 
Girlanda with drafting revisions to papal elections. Girlanda is an Italian Catholic cardinal closely associated with the Vatican. The reported revisions, including changing the pre-conclave meetings to have synod on synodality style small group discussions and limiting the pre-conclave meetings to only those cardinals who are under 80 and eligible to vote. But in an email to EWTN News this week, Cardinal Jolanda said, quote, I do not know anything about it, and any implication I have in it is a pure lie. The Vatican spokesman also denied knowledge in a statement to Catholic News Agency. And to bring us clarity on this story, we're joined by EWTN News editorial director, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Matthew, great to be with you today. So can you bring us up to speed? I know there's been a lot of speculation, uh, but what do we know for sure? I mean, what are the facts regarding the potential papal election reform? You know, well, two different outlets, uh, The Pillar and Remnant, uh, both reported that Pope Francis is supposedly uh, considering making some changes into the process process of a papal election. Uh, all of the events leading up, for example, to an actual conclave when the cardinals are locked in the Sistine Chapel, and that he had enlisted the help of one of the world's leading canonists or experts in uh, church law uh, to help him, and that is an Italian Jesuit cardinal, uh, Gianfranco Ghirlanda, uh, who supposedly was going to help him craft a number of changes uh, to the discussions leading into the actual vote. Among the changes that were supposedly being floated uh, was the idea that cardinals over the age of 80 would no longer be allowed to take part in what are called the general congregations, in other words, the gatherings of the cardinals uh, before they go in and actually vote. Uh, one of the other uh, proposals was that they were going to embrace more of a synodal model. In other words, instead of having all of the cardinals together having these conversations, they would use, like we saw with the synod on synodality, a series of small discussions, small tables. So it's more of a spiritual event. Cardinal Girlanda, however, has uh, very strongly denied any involvement uh, in any sort of a preparation for changes to the conclave. Uh, and uh, although the news outlets are standing by their reporting, uh, even the Vatican itself, through its spokesman, denied that such changes are in the works. Yeah, Matthew, I mean, is it even possible, though, to change how papal elections happen? And what would that require? Well, the answer, in short, is yes. Uh, any pope can change uh, the process of electing his successor. We've seen a number of changes over the last decades, from Pope Paul VI to John Paul II to, to Benedict XVI, and even Pope Francis has made a few minor modifications. What it would require is Pope Francis simply issuing a decree uh, altering how the process of election or the preparations for an election would take place. Uh, we'll see. Uh, once again, there's little indication that this is actually happening, and, and Cardinal Ghirlanda, again, denying that this is uh, taking place, but it is well within the authority of a pope to do so, uh, and Pope Francis may very well make that decision uh, before too long. Matthew, we have about 30 seconds left or so, but I quickly yeah. want to ask you this. I mean, this is something a lot of people are talking about, these reports that lay people could be involved in the conclave. What more do you know about that? And, you know, does the church leave room for that? Yes. Uh, well, uh, the reporting says that uh, Pope Francis might be toying with the idea of having lay people participate in these general congregations, in other words, the discussions before the conclave. The remnant was reporting that there was even an idea that uh, there might be a percentage of lay people who would be chosen as electors in a conclave. All of that is well within the authority of Pope Francis to do, but again, there's no indication uh, as of yet uh, that that's in the works. Traditionally, uh, for a very, very long time in the life of the Church, cardinals, uh, exclusively cardinals, uh, have had the right to vote for popes. Pope Francis uh, may decide to change that. Uh, we'll have to see in the coming months. All right, Dr. Bunsen, thank you so much. We appreciate your insights, as always. 
Well, finally tonight, the Catholic Church welcomes two recent converts, and they may look a little familiar. Actor and comedian Rob Schneider, known for multiple film roles, recently announced his conversion to Catholicism. The surprise news came in a recent birthday message that he posted to X. And also crossing the Tiber, Tammy Peterson, the wife of renowned Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson. She says that she will be confirmed into the Catholic Church next Easter. In an interview with the National Catholic Register, Peterson credits her faith journey to praying the rosary amid her aggressive kidney cancer diagnosis. Let us all keep them both in our prayers. Now we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.